worship team, if you would please open your Bibles to the book of Romans. You don't need to know where, just Romans, all right? The book of Romans, we'll spend all of our time in Romans today because we're doing something we've never done before. We are reviewing an entire book in one message, all right? We have spent a lot of time in the book of Romans, and today we want to make sure that we've got it. Speaking of got it, if you went to college and you were as dedicated to a learning as I was, um, you didn't need to laugh. Um, if you were as dedicated to learning as I was, uh, you uh, did this anytime you got a syllabus. You would look to see if the final was comprehensive. I hated comprehensive finals, absolutely loathed them. The thing is, is if you give me a slice of just almost any subject and a little bit of time to prepare, I can convince you on a test that I'm an expert or at least know enough about it for you to not flunk me. But if you get a comprehensive final, it requires that you, know, you actually know the subject, which is the goal of learning. The goal of learning is to know the subject. Well, we have spent 38 messages in the book of Romans, and the goal of learning is, is to know the subject, to know what the book of Romans is about. So we're about to pass out tests, and every, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that to you. We're not going to do that to you. There will not be a comprehensive final on the book of Romans, but it is important that all of us understand what it's about. Because if we do understand what this very important book is about, not only will it reaffirm our faith in Jesus, it will allow us to more easily share why those that we love who have not received Jesus as their Savior, it will help them understand why they should. This is an important review. It's something that we're looking forward to. And I do get that doing the review may even feel a little daunting to us to listen to it because there have been 38 messages. It did start last September. We did take breaks for Christmas and Easter and two massive COVID waves that hit us. And it's a hard book to understand. And, and so we think, how can I possibly understand it? But at the end of the day, it's really this simple. The entire book, all 16 chapters, are Paul's defense of this statement in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, where he writes, "'For I'm not ashamed of the gospel.'" For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is written, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That is what Paul is going to argue in the book of Romans, that what he's just said is true. And he will do it by making four major Points would be too easy. Let's call them declarations because that's really what they are, making four major declarations about the gospel that support his reason for saying he's not ashamed of it. Get these down. You get the book of Romans, and you really understand maybe more clearly than ever what the gospel is all about. So here's the first of the declarations that he makes. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the gospel's capacity. 
In other words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of what it can do. And in order to help us to see what the gospel can do, he has to show us what our capacities are, what we are capable of. And quite frankly, it's not a flattering picture. It's not something that we enjoy spending a lot of time thinking about. Immediately after giving us his thesis, Paul says this in verse 18 of Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, all those are Bible words. They can run together. I get that. What is he telling us? He's telling us simply that we have an endless capacity as human beings to deny the transcendent presence of God in our universe, to know and to be aware of the fact that God is everywhere and keeping all things together. Why is that? Why are we so obtuse? Why, why can we not see God's presence in our universe? Keep reading. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, he's talking about ancient peoples. And he's talking about how they kind of had a, a click in their head that said maybe there's something outside of us and maybe there is something beyond what we can see and touch and feel and hear that is organizing our world. But rather than say and deduce from looking at everything that it is a God bigger than we can ever imagine, they chose instead to attribute the important things of life like crop production and reproduction and general well-being to things that they themselves could craft and design worship of, which in essence subtly put them in charge of the universe. It allowed them to be able to say, well, if I do certain things, I can actually control in some way gods. We don't do that as crassly as ancient peoples. In modern times, our idols represent our rights or our flawless understanding of how the world works, which makes us the arbiter of all things that are true. What is true? It's whatever I decide to be true. So while idolatry doesn't exist in its crudest form, it still exists in our world, and by this idolatry, we deny the very existence of the God who holds all things together. So, since idolatry has always been going on, what does God do with this willful rejection of him? Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what has he just told us? He's told us, in essence, that God 
in response to our endless capacity to deny the transcendent existence of God, he's gave us an endless capacity to sin and debase ourselves. Now, the theological term for this is, is total depravity, which is wildly misunderstood. Total depravity doesn't mean that we're incapable of doing genuine good. We can, all of us, be capable of doing genuine good. Total depravity means that we are incapable, incapable of ever fully escaping the gravitational pull of sin in our lives. The understanding is actually reflected in the list of sins that we just read. We, we may not be homosexually or heterosexually immoral, sins that are outlined in the part of Romans 1 that I didn't read, or we may not have murdered a sin that is mentioned in the part of Romans 1 that I did read, but who here hasn't been envious? Who here hasn't been deceitful? Who here, still living at home, hasn't been disobedient to parents? Who here hasn't been foolish? And remember, I have access to most of your social media feeds. <laughs> That's why it's true that all of us, preachers, Sunday school teachers, folks just checking out church, have an endless capacity to sin and debase ourselves. In fact, this capacity is so endless that even if we think, you know what, I'm not a religious person, I live by my own moral code, that moral code we create actually condemns us before God. This is Paul's point in Romans 2.14. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, do not have the Old Testament, by nature do what the law requires, in other words, by nature, understand, shouldn't steal, shouldn't kill, Ten Commandments stuff. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. They're, everybody has a moral code. And while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What is he saying? He's saying even when we try to live by our own moral code, there will come a day where we will violate it. And on the day of judgment, we may want to cry out to God, I didn't know the Bible existed. And he would say, okay, well, then what code did you live by? And we'd say this code. He said, did you do it perfectly? And they'd say no. And they're in judgment before God. The human capacity to deny God and to sin and debase ourselves is endless. And as such, our capacity to save ourselves from God's wrath, to even seek him on our own, is non-existent. Look at Romans 3.10, where Paul, quoting extensively from the Old Testament, says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asp is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God in their eyes. Now, I get me reading that for what may have been the 50th time in a journey through the book of Romans and hearing that Romans talks over and over again about our endless capacity to sin and debase ourselves can feel like a broken record. I get, I get it's uncomfortable to hear. How much do I get that it's uncomfortable to hear? Well, when we got to the worst part of Romans, I went on sabbatical and gave it to Jonathan, let him preach it so that I could avoid 
avoid dealing with the meat of it. And yet Paul deals with the subject of human sinfulness a lot. But the reason, hear this, the reason he does is to highlight what the gospel can do, to highlight its capacity, its capacity to overwhelm all of our sin, to overwhelm our endless capacity to sin and debase ourselves and to save us. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, broken record, but then the rest of it, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a satisfactory substitute or propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show that his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to have what would otherwise be impossible for us because of our sinfulness to experience. It has given us the capacity to be forgiven by the transcendent God that we frequently deny exists and to have a relationship with him. How cool is that? How amazing is that? That's an unbelievable thought. There's a tendency in the church culture of today to minimize human sin. And the reason we do that is because we just want to highlight God's grace and love. But Paul understands, and he shows us clearly in the book of Romans, that you cannot highlight God's grace if you do not understand the depth to which you need it. I mean, if we just believe that we're all basically good people and God's just going to save us because it kind of adds to his collection of good people, then all we have is a new form of idolatry that puts us in charge, that aggrandizes us. But if we understand the offense of our sin before God, then we can look at the cross of Jesus Christ and understand the capacity, the unbelievable capacity of the gospel to undo what is hopelessly wrong with us. Paul starts off by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know what it can do. I'm not ashamed of its capacity. And next, filling out that thought, he says, I'm not ashamed because of the gospel's Savior." Paul spends all of of Romans 4 through 8 essentially unpacking two thoughts. Here's the first thought. That because of human sinfulness, God has always, always made faith the means to be made right with Him. In other words, we can't earn our way to God, so we have to put our faith in His solution. So that's the first thing he teaches in Romans 4 through 8. The second thing he argues is that the object of faith that saves must be and can only be Jesus Christ. So in order to be made right with God, he's always required that it be done by faith in his solution. His solution is Jesus Christ. Now there's obviously a lot more color and texture to that in Romans 4 through 8, so much so that we spent 11 weeks walking through those four chapters this year. 
And so there's a lot that we could get to, and we just don't have the time. So let's just kind of go right to when he's hitting his stride, his crescendo. Look at Romans 8.1. He makes this statement, again, wrapping up what he's begun in Romans 4. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's make sure we get that. We've just... We've just thought about the fact and the thought that Paul unpacks in Romans 1 through 3 that we have this endless capacity to sin and debase ourselves. And he says in this section, because of Jesus, if we are in Jesus, if we've given our lives to him, there's no condemnation for that. There is no condemnation for our endless capacity to deny God and to sin and debase ourselves. None. So if you faced placed your faith in Christ. Your identity is no longer defined by your sin and no longer defined by your rebellion. It's defined by something else, all right? And let's keep reading. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's a summary statement, a summary statement of why we're under no condemnation because we've placed our faith in Christ Jesus. And these next two verses explain that summary statement. Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to to the Spirit. Again, that can be a lot of Bible words running together, and you all are thinking about lunch, and we've got smoked meat in the parking lot. So here's kind of a summary of it. Paul says we're under no condemnation, and we have been set free from sin because Jesus paid the penalty for it. Jesus did not wave a magic wand and make the consequences of sin go away. That's not grace. Jesus took the condemnation for our sin on himself. And because he fulfilled the demands of law against sinners, remember the wages of sin is death, the payment that he provided is transferred to us when we place our faith in him. And when we place our faith in him, that cycle, the law of sin and death is broken, which leads Paul to utter these famous words beginning in verse 31 of chapter 8. What then? What then could we possibly say anymore? about what we have in Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he also not give us graciously all things? And he begins to ponder. He begins to say, well, is there anything that could come between me and God because of what Jesus has done? Is there, is there anything about the sacrifice of Christ that would leave a crack open? that would cause me to no longer experience this reconciliation that I have with God. He concludes no strongly. He says in verse 38, For I am sure, absolutely certain, that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how great Jesus is. Don't minimize him by getting stuck in Bethlehem in a manger 
And don't minimize them by doing a cultural celebration in springtime that we call Easter. Understand that he's God enfleshed who did the only thing that could be done to undo our endless capacity to sin and debase ourselves and make us right with him. Paul says, I'm not ashamed because of what the gospel can do. I'm not ashamed because of the gospel's capacities to overwhelm my sin. And I am not, I'm not ashamed because of the Savior who made that all possible. And then he says, I'm not ashamed because of the gospel's promises. Now, if we were to poll the congregation and ask them, if you were here through this series, tell me what your least favorite section was. I'm almost certain that everyone would say all those sermons from Romans 9 through 11. In fact, the reason I'm so certain of that is because if I were to poll the men who taught this to you, they would say without a doubt that was our least favorite part of the book to preach, and for a lot of reasons. It spends a lot of time plumbing the depths of this mystery of God's choice of us for salvation with our free will in the matter. And that discussion tends to really unnerve people when we start thinking of the extent to God's sovereignty even as it comes to our salvation. But Romans 9 through 11 also spends a lot of time talking about why the Gentiles of Paul's time were embracing Jesus and why the Jews of Paul's time were rejecting Jesus. And that conversation tends to make everybody yawn. It bores us. I don't care about that, we say to ourselves. And yet nestled in the core of these three chapters is the idea that God has had a plan since before time began to create for himself through Christ his very own people of every tribe and every color and every Nation That plan mysteriously wove its way through Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah and pagan Gentiles' acceptance of Jesus as Messiah. And we'll end with Israel in ways that boggle our imagination and are hard to comprehend now, turning to Jesus as Messiah. But the larger point that Paul is making in these three chapters is that God is just faithful to his promises to redeem fallen humanity, which leads Paul to these words that are among the mountain peaks of Scripture at the end of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of God? Or who has been His counselor? Who has given Him a gift that He might be repaid? Who has made God owe Him anything? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. God is keeping his promises to redeem fallen humanity. I've shared this with you before, but frankly, I've been here long enough as your pastor. Almost everything I have to say, I've shared with you before. And my only real hope is that you've forgotten the last time I've shared it. So I've shared this with you before. But one of the things I'll never forget from seminary was one of my professors saying anytime you're reading the Old Testament, you need to stop and ask yourself, in what I am reading, what is God up to? What is God up to? Because this is what I remember. He said, God is always up to something. God is always up to something. That means that in every second of history and in every human interaction, 
And in every victory and every trial and every joy and every heartache, God is at work. And that work complements his primary work, which is to fulfill his promise to make the Old Testament man Abraham a great nation and to bless all the nations of the world through him. And keeping that promise, culminating that promise in the person and the work of Jesus and the church that Jesus created. So in Romans 9 through 11, as difficult as it is, Paul's just simply saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I understand God keeps his promises. I understand that the Old Testament is not plan A, that there's a big oops, that didn't work, and the New Testament's plan B. I understand that God is keeping his promises from here to here, and within those bookmarks is my hope. Paul says, I'm not ashamed because of the gospel's promises. And then finally, he makes this declaration, I'm not ashamed because of the gospel's transformation. In light of the gospel's capacity to save us from our sin, in light of the Savior's capacity to make us right with God, in light of God keeping his promises to create a people to be his very own, it just makes sense, Paul concludes, that everything about our lives will be utterly and devastatingly different because of our encounter with Jesus as our Savior. That's the point that Paul makes in Romans 12 through 16, beginning with these words in verse 1 of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In that verse, Paul is issuing a call to a different kind of life in light of the gospel. Churches in my life's history have done a great job of describing for people the blessings of salvation. God has a wonderful plan for your life, but we've done a pretty awful job of explaining to people the call to salvation. You know what the call to salvation is? It isn't come and spend heaven with Jesus. The call of your salvation and my salvation is to die. It is to die. It is to lay down your life as a sacrifice to God. Allow him to take your life from there and to make it into a reflection of his will for it. Hear me, Johnson Countyans who are addicted to your personal rights. The call to salvation is a call to surrender autonomy. It is a call to surrender personal agency. It is not to surrender that to a preacher. It is not to surrender that to a church or a mentor or anyone else. It is a call to surrender all of that to God himself. And what comes next is described in this next verse. Do not be conformed to this world. If you do that, you will not be conformed to this world, but you will be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by thinking differently, and then by testing 
you may discern what the will of God is in any good situation, whether it is, it is a, a challenging situation or, or whether it is a situation that is pretty easy to figure out, you will be able through this transformation to understand what is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God in that moment. In short, salvation inaugurates a process in us that will culminate in the feet of Jesus that produces in us the likeness of Jesus. Our lives, when we lay everything down, when we surrender our rights to ever say, but I think, when we, when we lay that down before God, then God takes us and makes us like his son Jesus. He prepares us for that eternity that is to come. The nature of this transformation is so radical that we're being told in verse 2 that followers of Jesus come out of solution from the world around them and become obvious by their presence. And I believe that conformity to the world's morality and worldview and standards and values is the biggest threat to the testimony of Blue Valley and Johnson County. And I believe it is the biggest threat to our personal testimony in our schools, in our workplace, and in our neighborhoods. We, when we think of nonconformity, almost always interpret that morally. My morals are different from the worlds around me. But we never stop and think about, is, is, is my philosophy of life different from the world around me? If we removed all of us from Jesus and just plopped us down in our neighborhoods... Would our lives and our conversations and anything about us be appreciably different? We wouldn't. We would reflect the thought ghettos we run in in the Internet. We would reflect whatever our biases on any given subject was, like we're doing right now. But an introduction to Jesus changes Every bit of that. And the biggest problem to a proper response to that threat of a compromised testimony is our lack of general self-awareness about the extent of the conformity in our lives. And I'm talking about me here as well. We can see the conformity of other Jesus followers of other, or other churches. Did you see what that Jesus follower did on the Internet or what that Jesus follower did in his place of work? Or did you hear the message that is being preached at that church? Oh, that's bad. That's conforming to the world. We're great at that. We're great at that. But I'm telling you that walking through the minefield of the last two years has made it abundantly clear how conformed the community of Blue Valley is to the world that, around, that is around us. So, so how can we expose the conformity to the world that exists in our own hearts? <laughs> well, we're used to saying, well, here's three easy steps. There are no three easy steps. Here's the only news I have for you. Rooting out the conformity in our own hearts is a long, slow slog with Jesus. But going through that process begins by assessing what your real priorities are. We all say it's Jesus because we're conditioned to, but how much of our time are we really investing in our walk with Jesus every day, if I were to pull that? We say that we really 
have everything in our lives about Jesus, but, but are we kept awake at night by the same things that are keeping our neighbors awake at night? Are we being made angry by those same things? Are, are, are we offering the same solutions to those things that is being offered to the world around us? Is that our message? Is our message either vote Democrat or vote Republican? I thought it was Jesus saves. Can people tell that by what consumes us? Asking these questions, though, should do more than just reveal the depth of our conformity. It should also shed light for us on what nonconformity to the world gives us in Jesus. It frees us from shallow pursuits and worry and anger and misplaced allegiances and leads us to joy, which may be the most countercultural thing that we can offer for Jesus in our world. All of these things that everyone else is chasing is making them unhappy and angry and scared. But when we're out of solution with all of that, people say, what's wrong with you? And you say, there's nothing wrong with me. My sin's been overwhelmed by a message that is rooted in a man named Jesus, and it's part of God's promises that go back before time began. You think I'm worried about next week? That's the nature of the transformation, the transformation wrought by the gospel so complete we no longer fit in the world. And that's not cause for lament, that's cause for celebration because it allows us to see that the gospel is true and gives us a platform to show others that the gospel is true and something of which we should not be ashamed. And so that's Romans. Romans is Paul's explanation of why he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed because of its capacities. He's not ashamed because of what it can do. He's not ashamed because of its Savior. He's not ashamed because it is rooted in timeless promises that God kept and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he's not ashamed because it changes everything about us in joy-filled, glorious ways. And it's worthy of our trust. Let me tell you the most compelling part of Romans for me. It's its explanation of why I need a Savior to make me right with God and to prepare me for eternity. Because it shows me clearly that I can't trust myself to do the job. If I ever thought I could, I can't trust myself to do the job. If I'm religious and counting on my own religious devotion to pull me through, I'm in trouble because no one is a perfect reflection of whatever religion they subscribe to. Or if I'm irreligious and I'm just trying to be a good person, I'm in trouble because no one is able to be a perfect reflection of the moral code that they create for themselves. So the notion that I need a third party... Someone else, a savior, to redeem me from all of that just makes sense to me. It just makes sense to me. And I think it makes sense for a lot of us here today. Some of us, like me, made that decision a long time ago. Like for me, over 40 years ago on an Easter Sunday morning. For some of you, even longer than that. Some of you, not that long ago. But for some folks, you may just be coming to the conclusion today, yeah, Whatever eternity is, I can't get ready for it. But God is so good that he's made Jesus available to me. And you're starting to feel that tug to him right now, to, to give yourself to this Jesus, to lay down autonomy and rights and everything else and surrender your life to Jesus. That compulsion that you're feeling is God's invitation to you. And... Yes, you give up everything, but you get everything in return and more. 
And that is a trade that any clear-thinking individual would make every time. So if that's you this morning, we want to give you an opportunity, an opportunity to give your life to Jesus. Would you join me in prayer?